Are you done yet? Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschnell. On today's episode, we discuss the Hudson River School of Painting and its relationship with Manifest Destiny in a long tradition of American colonialism and settler propaganda. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, all. It's July, and so that means that it's America Month. America! Last month was Pride Month. Our listeners will remember we touched on a lot of LGBTQ issues. Uh, The month before that was Asian and Pacific Islander Month. And so looking for a theme for this month, we thought, well, since it is sort of our country's birthday, July 4th, Declaration of Independence, all of that, um, why don't we talk about issues of America and of our democratic mission um, as they relate to art? Because there's a whole lot of that. And I think that a lot of times fine art gets associated, especially the history of fine art gets associated with Europe, particularly European history. But there's a lot of it um, in more contemporary um, circles that have great foundational roots here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So this week we're talking about ideas around manifest destiny and the ways that artwork was used as a sort of propaganda to shape ideas and mythos about the American West, particularly in the 19th century. Cameras are just entering the world, but they are not entirely practical. So painting is still the major pictorial means of depiction. Um, And so painting itself, especially sort of classical and impressionist styles of painting, was uh, key to sort of spreading ideas of beauty and majesty of the American frontier. One of the sort of iconic areas that this came out of was the Hudson River School, which is credited as one of the first real major American art movements. Are either of you familiar with the Hudson River School at all and that sort of history of painting there? Um, in AP U.S. history, it was like, learn this. Okay, filed away. American art, that's about it. You just know that it exists. (laughs) It's going to be a hard no for me. (laughs) And that's fine, because they're really fucking boring paintings, really. If you think of a beautiful landscape with dynamic chiaroscuro light and weird weather patterns that don't really exist in real life and over-vibrant sort of colors, but out of the 19th century, that is your Hudson River School. It was a a group of painters that started in the Hudson River Valley in New York and sort of spread out across the United States, painting these grand depictions of the American frontier. And sort of establishing this identity of nature and and sort of the unsettled in quotes um, areas of the country as this this beautiful sort of place that you can't find anywhere else in the world right mm-hmm. in these paintings a lot of it is idealized painters took liberties with their landscapes um, they took liberties with 
particularly the the native peoples that might be living in those places um, and their depictions of them. And some of these paintings were of places that these painters had never actually been to. Oh, great. They would get to the West Coast. They wouldn't make it all the way up to Puget Sound, but then they'd make a painting of Puget Sound based on what they saw in Northern California and Oregon and just kind of made a guess there. So like our podcast, just vibe it and, you know, you get there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. An educated guess at uh, what your viewers might want to see, right? But it was very effective, right? And they are beautiful paintings. There are a couple here in... Sacramento at the Crocker Art Museum, particularly a, a Thomas Hill that we'll talk about later in the episode. But the point of these paintings were to sort of get people's attention about what the West looked like, right? And how incredible this frontier was that for white people was unsettled, right? Never mind that there were entire civilizations who had been living there for, you know, thousands of years. This was a way to sort of advertise the American West to people on the East Coast and to people in Europe. I think we talked about this before, one of our guests, we were talking about the idea of like the Western frontier and art and the unreliability of these painters to tell the things of truth. Were there certain principles that they were like, to make this like, quote-unquote, right. You just kind of have to paint it like this, even though that's not what you see. Well, the Hudson River School followed the sort of plain air tradition of painting, which is you go out into nature and you paint it, right? Which is what makes it kind of funny when you find out that some of these paintings were of places that these men, and they were almost all men, had never actually been to, right? (laughs) Oops. Um, (laughs) It's okay. I was outside, guys. It's fine. (laughs) How different can Washington be from California? And they're also painting for people who are probably never going to see these places, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a safe assumption that if you paint the Yosemite Valley, most people who see it aren't going to make it there. But some of those people might try to get there and end up somewhere along the way. It's hard to sort of parse what the ideas of accuracy and what those ideals actually were for these folks, right? I I think that those sort of contemporary ideas of what is accurate and what is true are a little bit different than how people at this time would be thinking. If you got the colors right, if you got all the landmarks there, right, then it, it might be right enough. Or if you were just out in it, right? Because the other thing is that these aren't photographs and you're never going to be able to take that painting out to the place and compare it either. So, you know, there's a little bit of leeway there too. Or at least that was the thought. Right. Little did they know that we'd have little screens in our pockets where we could access Thomas Hill's paintings from from the valley. But something I was wondering is there's this emphasis on the majestic natural beauty of this, you know, suspicious quotation marks, uninhabited world. Was there any kind of religious element to these things, you know, trying to capture, you know, the way God made the earth or anything like that? That varies by painter, right? Mm-hmm. And and anything out of the 19th century, especially here in the United States, is sort of inescapably tied to those sorts of religious ideals. Yeah, um, kind of assume that everybody had a little bit of a puritanical lean at that point. Right, right. <laughs> and in reality, like, you know, the, the people doing the writing often did, right? And, mm-hmm. and how widespread was that actually? 
It's hard to say. Yeah. But a lot of this comes out of the idea of manifest destiny, which I believe, Sean, you and I spoke to Elena Rios with way back last year. Yes. But manifest destiny is this idea which is still relevant today, that mm -hmm. it is the duty of Americans and American settlers to spread the ideas of religious America and democracy from coast to coast across the continent, um, and then later kind of expanded to a global ideal. But Manifest Destiny really comes out of this idea of, of it is our duty as a Christian nation to spread Christianity and democracy and the ideals of freedom from New England all the way to the Pacific Northwest. Not only was it our duty, but it was also our God-given right. right? We, we had been given this continent to conquer and tame, and that we would be doing a disservice to ourselves and to those who were here if we did not bring them that powerful Christianity. There is some debate, but I, I think that it is impossible to say that that ideal and the Hudson River School of Painting are completely separate. You see that kind of thinking even in like John Muir's writings, mm -hmm. sort of later in this era, it is all very much wrapped up in this. It is our responsibility to be the sort of shepherds of, of this land that we have been given either through luck or through God and to protect it in some way. So you can, you can see how Hudson River would be a very valuable tool in accomplishing that, right? And mm -hmm. sort of advertising in this new frontier to people who would have a vested interest in moving out there and, and, and spreading the American way. A lot of blind confidence we got going on here. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, it's kind of a wild way to think, right? And it completely ignores the fact that there are already people living there, right? This was not unsettled frontier. American Indians had lived on this entire continent for thousands of years by that point. And so the idea that they needed to be gifted Christianity and American democracy, <laughs> uh, that, that, that is a loaded idea. Well, obviously. yeah. Because, I mean, also the prevailing thought at that time were that they weren't people, they were savages, they were uncivilized. And, right. you know, the way to get them to be quote-unquote civilized, God-fearing people <laughs> was for them to assimilate right. forcibly. And doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that something that we've been dealing with ever since? Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. <laughs> what, you mean these rich white people don't think people who look different than them are not people? Like, the fuck is that? <laughs> You're lying. I, yeah. No way. No. And I, I think it, it also can't be understated how ridiculous it is to think that these places that these white people were painting needed to have some importance placed on them, right? Yeah. A lot of these places were sacred sites for the folks that already lived there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and places of importance and whatever sort of social strata you wanted to place that importance. They already served purposes for the the native people in the area, and native people knew how beautiful the world was that they lived in, and they respected the hell out of it, right? And and they oftentimes built culture around preserving those places and and respecting that land. And mm -hmm. so, 
there's an irony in having a bunch of, you know, classically trained white people who are mostly dudes sort of wave through that area and 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 say, well, we need to we need to paint this stuff and we need to capture its beauty so that people really appreciate it. Right. Mm-hmm. There there was that sort of thinking in it too, that like we need to show people this majesty so that they respect it and so that it is captured and so that we remember how beautiful it is. And so we can make a paycheck. Right. (laughs) And then move in and just clear cut it. Yep. Because Timber is going to build a boom economy here. When I was researching for this episode, I I was reading a sort of conversation about um, how these paintings were happening and how early photography, this would have been like wet plate, glass negative photography, early collodion stuff. Like you come in with a dark room and a bunch of chemistry in a wagon or on the back of a mule and set up your camera and take a photograph that, you know, takes 30 minutes to set up and and then you have to develop it there and all of that. So as these guys were coming through and painting these places, there were also early cameras coming through. And sometimes those were showing two very different depictions, right? Oops. Especially if you are moving through the Pacific Northwest where there was all of this, you know, rainforest that had old growth lumber, which was incredibly valuable, that we were clear cutting. You you might have a Hudson River school painter there painting the majesty of, of this Pacific Northwest rainforest and then a photographer photographing the utter destruction by the logging industry of, of that very same place. So there's this dissonance too between like the idealized, which the Hudson River School very much was, right? The, mm-hmm. this, this ideal of of this landscape and the reality, which is it's just another tool to progress capitalism and, and progress American success. And then you also have to think of if your average person at that time is presented with these two options, which are they going to find more pleasing, more aesthetically <laughs> pleasing? Which one will they be willing to pay money to see. Right. right. And that's not a problem that we've moved away from either, right? Are you going to read the New York Times or are you going to watch the screaming guy on YouTube where it's free, right? Like propaganda works because it is always easier to access, right? Mm-hmm. And and it is colorful and vibrant a lot of the time. It, it is attention grabbing and mm-hmm. it is easy to consume, right? You know, a photograph of devastated landscape is not an easy thing to consume or digest. And at this time is not even particularly easy to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you have this massive painting, you ship that around to various galleries and you make an event out of it. And a whole lot of people can come and see it at once. Right. These paintings were 10 feet wide and six or seven or eight feet tall. They, a lot of them were huge, these massive sort of all encompassing spectacles. People are going to see that and, and, and jump to that. Right. So another aspect to this too, is the building of an American identity and an American aesthetic. Right. And one interesting thing about the Hudson river school is that a lot of the painters were immigrants themselves especially coming from England and Ireland, who had come to the United States for opportunities and found their way into painting. But they they were the ones who helped sort of build this American aesthetic of, of painting. 
there's a, mm-hmm. a certain level, I don't know if it's really irony, but this all feeds into the idea of, of the Monroe Doctrine, which is a United States policy that opposed European colonialism on the continent, right? This idea that we are, again, the shepherds of the continent and we must protect it from being colonized by the rest of Europe. So we can do it. Right. It's our job. We are the police. It wasn't initially, it it wasn't an offensive thing. It was more of a a defensive thing, right? It was like, Europe shouldn't be settling this continent. It's not necessarily ours, but it's not Europe's, right? And it sort of morphed into this nationalist idea of not only is it not Europe's, but it is ours because we are here and we can get to it, right? And, And Europe should not be on this continent. We should be here, and if it's not us, it should be independent governments who are partial to our lifestyle and our way of of governing. So the Monroe Doctrine, while not initially this sort of aggressive thing, kind of turns into the actual policy arm of Manifest Destiny, right? If you don't think that Europe should be on the continent, the next logical step is to make sure that you control the continent so that Europe can't be there, right? Right. And that you get yourself involved in the other places where you are not to push Europe out. This is the doctrine that starts to see the United States yeah. trying to get itself involved in South American governments and in sort of Woof. installing ideas of democracy in, in the surrounding areas. It's kind of funny because when it's rolled out in the mid-19th century, we don't have any power. Right, we are we're still a young country. We don't really have a, a powerful army or a powerful navy. We have no respect in Europe. We're just seen as sort of disrespectful, obnoxious children because we were, and so like Europe just brushes it off. Mm-hmm. But England latches onto this. Right, England, in the midst of their attempt to take over the entire world, um, sees this as a valuable thing. Right, here is our new allies. And they saw a genuine reason to sort of help enforce this, right? And so it is England that keeps Europe out of the Americas. But as we go into World War I and then World War II, it becomes this sort of reasoning for why we should be involved in spreading democracy the world over. But it all comes out of this idea of, look at this great American West Look at this this thing that we are adjacent to, this this country. It is our duty to protect and to to civilize and and to settle. Um, it all gets wrapped back up into this this weird little world of painting and and sort of propaganda by beautiful fine art. At least it looked good, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's all that matters. Yeah, I can agree with that. Oh. The worst things sometimes do. At least it wasn't ugly. Right. <laughs> ugly and terrible, unacceptable. Well, we, you know, there's plenty of examples of that too. <laughs> so I find it really interesting, you know, that the Mon- Monroe Doctrine, uh, looked it up, began in 1823. The term wasn't coined until 1850, but we had the War of 1812. You know, not too long before when the United States was at war with Britain, the United States and France were at war with Britain. And 
the kind of sudden about face for England to be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, guys. You know, it's just I just find that very, very interesting. Like white people are so fickle. Well, and it, it really underlines how much of a pain in the ass the United States has been since day one. Oh, yeah. There's an argument that the reason why we won the American Revolution was that it was just too expensive for England to keep up that war, <laughs> right? This is a time where it took a month to get here from England. And so, like, at some point you go, I have holdings in Canada, you know, like, give them this land. I don't have time to think about this. We'll just move on. And we just we just keep poking the bear and and always have. But yeah, it it's it is funny how quickly those things can change too, mm-hmm. right? Like just like, oh well, you're a pain in the ass, but maybe you're an asset to me. Yeah. And in, in my greater designs uh for world dominance. There's just such an element of irony to the whole thing as well, because you know, you take the idea of the Monroe Doctrine. It's just like, hey, this is ours. Like, don't come here. But then, very shortly after that, because, you know, even today, America is still a very young country. We're like, hey, Guam looks cool. Let's take that. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you guys call this the Philippines? Hmm. Cool. Let's let's do some stuff with that. Oh, wait, the Soviets are invading Afghanistan? Hmm. Hawaii? Right. Don't meddle in our stuff. But, you know, like, it's cool if we meddle in everybody else's stuff. Right. Because we're right. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. And Jesus. And Jesus. And that's important. If you haven't listened to the latest season of the podcast Slow Burn, they're not paying us any money. We're not sponsored by Slate, but they're doing good work over there. The latest season is about the war in Iraq and how these very same forces got us involved over there. Like this, this idea that we need to be entangled in it and saving those people from themselves and spreading democracy. It's it's really fascinating because it is the same thing that we see over and over and over again, right? Not too long after we give a name to the Monroe Doctrine, Teddy Roosevelt's eyeing Cuba and mm-hmm. thinking hmm. we need to be involved. I should get on a horse and take that. Right. <laughs> I should send a bunch of black people in who are actually going to wipe out the Cuban forces there, and then I'll ride in on a horse and write a story about how I conquered Cuba. Ooh. Guys, Teddy Roosevelt is really, really bad. <laughs> Our American idolization of him is is really, really, really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. You just it's very fascinating all these historical figures we quietly box into good one, bad one. And you know, it's like it's all great, you know, minus Nixon. Shh. Don't ask that part about Thomas Jefferson. No, that's not true. Shh. But even as we start talking about the founding fathers and their very real issues with race and wealth, you know, as we start looking, really looking at that, um, and even looking at Woodrow Wilson, who was a ardent white supremacist, the the more complicated people like Teddy Roosevelt fall by the wayside because it's much easier to write about Teddy Roosevelt as this like root and toot and cowboy type, mm-hmm. right? He is he is so perfect as an American hero that he uh right you, you know you forget that like the cowboys were problematic too yeah and it kind of 
ties into the kind of the conversation that we're having of the Western identity, the American identity through art and through storytelling and stuff. You know, it's just like uh, through the early 1800s, most of what we were producing in America were just emulations of what people had known in Europe. And a lot of the ways that we found our own artistic identity, whether that was through visual arts or literature was by taking these aspects of what it was quintessentially American and stretching them and blowing them up beyond proportion. You know, some of the earliest like definitively American novels were basically a low fidelity James Bond (laughs) where it's just, you know, some guy like going out and, Taming the wilds and going through all kinds of trials and tribulations that would have killed any other man, but not this one. You know, stuff like not that. Not by luck, yeah. just by Amer- the American ingenuity and spirit. Yeah. And so Teddy Roosevelt is kind of like just an extension of that. Right. He he is that, he is all of those characters personified in a single devilishly grinning individual mm-hmm. who gave a speech after being shot. Like he he is he is all of those those things that anybody wants the yeah. American hero mm-hmm. to be, and no matter who you are, you can find something, right? Not only was he a warmongering hawk and deeply deeply racist, but he was also into conservation, right? And he he through the influence of things like the Hudson River School and and John Muir, who was connected. To some of those painters, Roosevelt was inspired to to lay the groundwork for the national parks. Right? Mm-hmm. There's some debate about his actual reasoning for that. Right? He's an avid hunter, and he has interest in protecting those lands so he can go hunting mm-hmm. them. But conservation, right? And we see that too when we talk about John Muir now as well, who had deeply problematic ideas about American Indians and about people who were not white and also about what the purpose of these lands were and, and who they belong to and who should take care of them in what way. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's mirror is a, is a hero of the American liberals of the Pacific Northwest. Right. Oh yeah. You know, and, and we are only just now getting around to talking about, well, he's actually kind of complicated. Right. Yep. And, and that should be, I think that needs to be stated here too, that, Two things can be true at once, right? These paintings are beautiful, a lot of them, and they are important, right? And they are fundamental in the American art canon. Um, but they also have a deeply problematic foundation and and roots in terrible things, right? Mm-hmm. And we can recognize both of those things at once, just like we can recognize that the contemporary conservation movement wouldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir we would not have any semblance of the American wilderness left if it weren't for, for people like that, but also their methods of doing it and their entire approach to it was bad. And maybe they are people who contradict the values that they seem to uphold. Right. But that's hard to talk about, especially if you are trying to do what these paintings are trying to do and just like boil it down to the enjoyable things. Like it's Mm -hmm. hard to talk about, well, this is pretty, but, or, well, Yosemite is protected now, but, you know. 
unacceptable. We can't have that kind of nuance here on the internet. Yeah, we can't. There's no room for it. But it also goes back to these manifest destiny ideas that we still, that, you know, a certain subset love to hold on to for patriotism. Like, lo- very loosely, slipperily, every cha- ever-changing. No, you can't say that they were bad. They were great. Right. Or even that, the way that we talk about these same landscapes, right? Like, my personal connection, my personal art connection to this type of work is my avid dislike for Ansel Adams. Canceled. Destroyed. We ended him. Ansel who? (laughs) (laughs) Dead. We don't utter that name on this podcast. We'll just put Ansel Adams' name just under Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) We canceled two already on our list. Wow, guys. We're doing great. We are... We are... We are crushing it, as the kids say. And if you'd like us to cancel more people, subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash meaningwhatpod. Ansel Adams, in a lot of ways, is was kind of a contemporary practitioner of this. The people that worship at Adams' feet are doing a lot of the same thing, right? And I, what I mean when I say that is that it is no secret that Ansel Adams' photographs are not the real thing, right? He's not going to Yosemite and setting a camera up and just clicking the shutter. They're heavily filtered, and that changes your perception, and obviously his focus is very particularly placed. But then in the darkroom, when he printed, or when his technicians printed for him, things were regularly spotted out or you know recolored or shifted or removed, so when you see Adams's photographs of the Yosemite Valley, they're not really that much more accurate in any practical sense than, say, Thomas Hill's painting of the Great Sierra Valley. And it works in the same way, right? Ansel Adams is celebrated as capturing the majesty of these wilderness places, particularly Yosemite. And that is important because for a lot of people who don't live anywhere near that, Ansel Adams' photographs are going to be their first understanding and maybe their only understanding of what that sort of landscape looks like. And it is entirely based on these very American ideas of, of what sort of that pictorial tradition should be and, and, and how that place should be presented which itself is completely removed from, say, the people who lived there and whose that land arguably already belonged to. Thereby permanently warping our American American history and American perception of all of this. Yeah. Absolutely. Every every photograph you've ever seen of Half Dome is based on Ansel Adams' photographs of Half Dome. And oh. you know. And if you went there that would be the the vista that you would be looking for. It's hard to sort of separate yourself from that that imagery, even if you don't recognize it, right? Because that is that's what you've seen. That is that was in your your school textbook. 
that is in the weird kiosk in the mall that only sells wall calendars, right? Like that is, <laughs> you're, you have seen that photograph everywhere. Yeah. And it is burned into your psyche as an American and especially as a, as we are Americans of, of the West Coast. If you look at the east of the globe, you know, the Eastern Hemisphere, you know, you have Europe and Asia, Africa, Australia, uh, Malaysia, all that stuff. There are plenty of kind of untouched landscapes there. However, they've all been inhabited or colonialized by white artistically minded settlers for much longer than the Americas. And this winds up creating a kind of issue where somebody like an Italian artist couldn't capture the Dolomites with as much improvisation as Ansel Adams would capturing Half Dome because there's going to be so many more people familiar with those vistas. And so because of America's youth, because America had so much that was not able to be witnessed by the vast majority of specifically white Europeans, there's so much more room for kind of fudging and doing a little bit of this and doing a little bit of that and marking this up or moving this a little bit over here and moving that a little bit over there that doesn't necessarily capture things in its true entirety. I, yeah, I would also argue that it is just part of our identity too, right? Mm -hmm. especially for white Americans, that this country of ours is massive and unknowable and untamable mm -hmm. and that it is impossibly unique. And so there is some extra wiggle room almost to create vistas that are inaccurate, but approach that sort of glory that we tell ourselves that, that, that we contain. Right. And because mm -hmm. it is ours, because it is all ours in that sort of tradition, you know, there is a level of, I think, often unrecognized sort of liberty that we take with it that we might not take with, say, islands in the Pacific, which are still viewed as belonging to the people that live there. Mm -hmm. Those places are the other, right? And they are unknowable in a different way because there are cultures that live there that are not ours and that we don't understand. But here in America... This is all ours, and the unknowingness of it is because of God's majesty and because of its sheer size and um, because we have conquered it and then set our own limits around it, right? Mm -hmm. we, have, we have conquered it, but then we decided that we probably shouldn't bulldoze Yosemite. Maybe. And so <laughs> then it becomes it, its own majestic place. But it is entirely based on our own our own purview. Did art criticism not exist? I guess it probably just got expunged from mystery. If someone was like, hey, I actually went to Puget Sound. It doesn't look like that. <laughs> <laughs> no one can tweet about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like at that point, like, who are you gonna believe? You know, some schmo who's been working in a coal mine and in the middle of nowhere or an artist. Right. 
if you think about what painting was at the time, I think that there is some assumption that there are going to be creative liberties taken anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in the 19th century, like historical painting was number one, right? And, and no one was around to see the birth of Venus. So she was hot. It's artist's interpretation, right? So I, close enough shell, (laughs) a fully formed young woman from the sea. So I think that, there was probably some assumption there that like this isn't maybe entirely accurate and they're mm-hmm. kind of unbelievable vistas to begin with. But also like we were saying earlier, you didn't have a cell phone to go out into the wilderness with and hold up that hill or that coal painting and compare it to Yosemite. Nobody could do that. Right. And so even if you saw it and then you went out to the vista, like, you wouldn't remember all the details. Mm-hmm. You might think that something was funny or something was off. Or or you had just read people writing about it and it was the same thing. You know, you would you would have your own perception of it, but you probably were not going to see a photograph of it. And if you did, it was not going to be of a fidelity that would allow you to really understand its details. And then additionally, unless you had a postcard, which I think would have come a little bit later, you weren't going to be able to, you know, take that postcard out and hold it up, <laughs> much less a a high-definition OLED screen on a on an iPhone that shows <laughs> you the true pixel depth of whatever you're seeing. We didn't have iPhones? Yeah, amazingly. The world existed before 2007. So What? <laughs> <laughs> but it's also propaganda working, right? If you say the sky, if, if the U.S. government told us the sky is chartreuse enough times and also threatened to, to you know, maybe uh, unalive you if you didn't agree with that opinion, they could make you believe it or at least say that you believe it. So, Well, we also didn't have the level of communication that we have now, right? And most people who would have consumed these paintings probably, unless they were wealthy, considerably wealthy, they wouldn't have had the free time to Travel. take these pursuits on on their own, right? Um, and I'm not saying that, for example, farmers would have had access to this paintings. these galleries, uh, no, right? or 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 the working class. But even the burgeoning middle class wouldn't they were not all talking to each other in the way that we are now, right? And Mm -hmm. they were getting their information from a much narrower selection of sources and there wasn't this free trade of ideas. And so if you're presented with information from somebody who is an expert, one, you don't have any way to check if they're an expert, right? Other than other people saying that they're experts. And two, you don't have any reason to question it in the first place because you know that you do not have the means to go disprove that. Yeah. And you don't have the time and you don't have the interest. Their vibes seem right. I'll, I'll take their word for it. So should we talk about how this all started? By this, I mean this episode, why we were looking to talk about it. There's this incredible painting at the Crocker Art Museum, which is our really surprisingly respectable art museum here in the oft-forgotten capital of California. And the painting is titled Great Canyon of the Sierra Yosemite. It's an 1872 painting by the painter Thomas Hill that is 10 feet wide and 6 feet tall, and there's a bench in front of it, and it is framed by this ridiculous kind of gaudy tree branch frame, and it, it depicts the 
the Yosemite Valley, Half Dome is off in the distance. And it it's an incredible painting. It's stunning. It is. It's one of my favorite things of the Crocker. If if you live anywhere near Sacramento or if you have a reason to fly into our terrible airport, it is an international airport, you should stop by the Crocker just for this painting. It it is worth it. It is a spectacle in every way. You know, I certainly every time I go to the Crocker, I sit there and and spend time with it. Chris, you were saying that you did the same thing too, yeah? Yeah. It's in a wing that has a lot of American art from that time period. So that painting from Hill is one that I like to spend some time with. And there's also uh, some paintings from Edwin Deacon, a lot of which are uh, the subject matter is uh, the uh, Pueblos in California. It's just a really, really great collection of American art from that time period. And so towering over all of this really beautiful work is this this incredible, almost unbelievable painting that someone produced, right? This this thing that was painted by hand. Just the size alone is like enough to make you just stop in awe over it that a human made this. Yeah, yeah. Painstakingly, without the assistance of machinery, made this thing. It's insane. It's a great argument for why people need to see art in person because Mm -hmm. you can look at this painting on the internet and it is not striking it's like cool yeah whatever it is whatever it's another painting of that landscape but then you see it in person and it looks like you could step into it you know Mm -hmm. and every time you look at it there are additional details there are people in the painting that are i believe native americans moving through the landscape and there are unbelievably detailed plants depicted throughout it, it it is it is a thing that you get lost in the lighting yeah. in it is unbelievable it's crazy and because it is beautiful it is this painting that you you go to and you sit down and you sort of reflect on and you you spend time with for me because of that and because i have been privileged to have the education that i've had i still go to the Crocker, and I still, every time I go, I sit down in front of this painting and I, I sit with it and I think about it. I think about the way that I interact with it and, and the time I'm spending with it. And I cannot escape now, because of that education, the purpose that this painting has, how effective it is at communicating this almost manufactured, in a way, majesty of this place. And then the historical connections that it has to my own medium and and my own practice through Mm -hmm. Ansel Adams and and through the contemporary landscape photography movement, even for somebody like me who is not a landscape photographer or a landscape artist in really any way, it's still important. It's incredible because it grabs you, but the longer that you spend with it, the more complicated it becomes. It's not just this painting of this landscape. After being in California for several years and after experiencing this painting, I was able to go to Yosemite. And that was one thing that my partner and I sought out was uh, Inspiration Point, the the vista that kind of shows what this painting was depicting. And while Inspiration Point was beautiful, it was really 
fantastic vista. It was just like a bird's eye view of all these like little different key elements of Yosemite. It wasn't mm. like the painting. And right. there's so many reasons for that. You know, it's been, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. You know, just a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a whole industry around getting people to go to Yosemite mm. and stuff like that now. And, you know, just the, the foot traffic and the fires and everything else. But at the same time, you know, it accomplished what it was meant to accomplish in so many ways. It took what something that was already just unrealistically and unfathomably beautiful and just taking it one step further. The propaganda is good. It gets you sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. My closest analog is when the national anthem is sung right, like I almost want to take off my hat and stand up for it. Almost, but not quite. I thought you were going to say take off your shirt. I mean that too. And then I guess you start painting like stars <laughs> on your nipples. I think, I think I'll go yeah. there. Um, I almost want to eat three hot dogs. Ooh, three, like one. Then you remember <laughs> what animal is this? <laughs> it's better if you don't. All ask. of them. Yep. Allegedly all beef. It's kosher. What isn't it here? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Whitney Houston, 1991, some sports game, I think the Super Bowl, and then we were in a war, so there was a plane flyover after it, so everyone was extra hyped, but it is so good, I'm not even sure she's saying it live, but it is so good, Whitney's recorded voice is so good, you almost believe in America, (laughs) (laughs) for that once, those three minutes. Sometimes America accidentally gets the propaganda right sometimes. Oh. Well, I mean, propaganda, you know, when it's done right, works. It always has, and it probably always will. Right. And it is easy for us to think that we are far removed from all of this, too. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and we, I am immune to propaganda. <laughs> right. But even, even beyond the protagonist syndrome, right, just that we are beyond this era of propaganda and this era of colonization, this era of claiming America and forming it. But these paintings were being made in the 1850s and 1870s. That's not that long ago on the grand scheme. Our democracy, our current form of government did not exist until 1789, 1790, right? So we are just wee babes, right? And we are still feeling the effects of this propaganda and the effects of this very, very, very real nation building, right? This mm-hmm. this force to form an identity. And we're still trying to answer that question too. Like, yeah. what what is our responsibility to this land? What is our relationship with it? And that becomes more complicated as you get further and further removed, right? And And as people are born in a place and they have children and they have children, right? These questions get very complicated, but they are also not so different than what we were facing when the Hudson River School was painting these grand vistas of of these places. We just have different ways of consuming it and interacting with it, and we're able to get there. It is The mystery is not gone, but it's different in a lot of ways.
It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?